Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. In the final part of our dialogue with Bina Sharma about adult psychological development, we explore the farther reaches of adult maturity. We then investigate the far-reaching implications of this new science of adult development for better and more deeply understanding ourselves, our potentials, our society, coaching and psychotherapy, religion, and more. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit. Life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. So... We now have a big picture overview, which is wonderful. You've given us the whole spectrum, the nine stages of increasing embrace, the the capacities that increase with each stage, the questions that emerge with each stage, the challenges. It seems like we're now in a position where we can begin to look at some some of the big implications of this. And since we already you already brought up religion and wisdom traditions. I would just like to put it, I, I'll, I'll put it as a statement to which I invite you and John to, to respond, and that is, I don't think it's possible to understand religion well without a developmental framework. As far as I can see, religion is one of our very, very few institutions which really has expressions at each and every one of these stages. And teachings for each and one of these stages and induction into and these stages and more importantly practices for moving people through them so i'd love to hear your comment yes and if you'll excuse me i want to go just before you ask this question when you sort of summarized and said you know you've talked about this whole model and you know you summarized it nicely i want to say one thing before we go to your question about religion And that is, I think the key thing is for us always to be aware that this developmental model is this creating, does this come in the way of me connecting with another person? Mm, Beautiful. And it can very easily do that because we immediately have this thing that other people are not developed and we need to develop them. And this is these are the problems of the world. But the person in front of me, does this come in my way? Does it become it, it? The developmental model itself teaches us that the last stage, most mature stage in this framework is one of no boundary consciousness. And we use the developmental model to create boundaries. And that I feel is not okay. So I just I just wanted to say that, that we have to be, I have to be very conscientious about that not becoming a barrier between me and the human being in front of me, no matter. And I would would say that any theory, anything, can be misused and abused. And just because that's so, it doesn't mean you shouldn't proceed with the work. 
I mean, we have a great capacity to muck up everything as human beings, no matter how lofty or beautiful the ideal or the ideas are. So, I mean, it's good to be forewarned. And I think we probably all experienced the misuse of developmental theory in our lives. For me, yeah. But this theory particularly, because this theory is teaching that the end goal is no boundaries or, you know, including all inclusive. So this theory in particular, I think would be a bit, it would be a a most egregious, you know, using this theory in that way. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I agree that all frames can come in the way. So coming back to the religion, I do first, let me say that I do believe that this framework can help us understand the dynamics of formal organized religion and what happens with human beings in those organized systems. And I would also just broaden it and simply say that this is a this framework has massive explanatory power. So you can use this framework to explain almost any field of endeavor and begin to see the evolution of any field of endeavor because it's fundamentally rooted in the human beings that contribute to that field and what their models of reality are and what their models of the self is not the models are i mean from yeah. from micro to macro you can use this framework uh, that's a beautiful concept that, that it has enormous explanatory power. And, and just to refine the its explanatory power for religion, yes. as, as we're talking about, religions have specialized in cultivating states of consciousness. They have not known about, because we didn't have the requisite measures, stages of development. And so we have these conundrums of people, some people having very remarkable states of consciousness, but still remaining somewhat, it seems, immature psychologically. And perhaps the most tragic example of that is given by the book, explicated in the book Zen at War, which describes in painful detail some of the Zen teachers around the time of the Second World War who were, I don't doubt, some of them had quite remarkable states of consciousness and were extremely nationalistic, chauvinistic, sexist, and imperialistic, and uh, supported Japan's World War II efforts. So, so it's a tricky business. Yeah, it is. So I'm not sure how much I can. First, I haven't studied it that much. I mean, I haven't read that book that you're talking about. But I could say some general things from the way I've understood it. So one is that they, you know, like the particular Zen masters you were talking about, there's the absolute and then there's the relative. The relative context is the culture. And then the absolute is just my relationship with God or existence or whatever it is. So in one dimension, I may have reached all these states of consciousness, but that doesn't assume that I have progressed through the various you know, levels of maturity or uh, more sophisticated ways of understanding culture in context. And I haven't questioned those assumptions because I just, that hasn't been my attention. I haven't questioned my culture. I haven't questioned the norms. I haven't, I just follow them because they're unexamined and I take them to be real. So, so there is, there is a divide there. It's not an integral development, one could say. So let me just pause there. I mean, I have a lot of other things to say, but I think I need I need some help in crystallizing based on, you know, your response and questions. Yeah, well, one, one thing is that no matter where you have this Zen awakening, 
you will have it and interpret it through the level that you're currently at. And so, yeah, and, and, and which would explain if you're at this tribal level and you have this experience of oneness or whatever the Zen masters are talking about, it doesn't kick you up to the highest level of human development. And that was really hard for us to understand. And I think in the integral movement, we began to look at that. And how do we get these teachers that seem to be able to transmit when they were around them, those of us around that we experience a oneness or something very powerful and mysterious that seemed very good, yet at the same time, they, they behaved like they had barely any psychological or moral development in their personal relationships and how they used the power of their spiritual transmitting to treat the people around them. So it is an issue, but I think, I think we, we can understand that that spiritual development has to be accompanied along with moral, ethical, and psychological development too, or you run into myriad problems. Yeah, I think at the root of it is also this this division and, um, you know, between the spiritual and then the material. And Sri Aurobindo talks about that beautifully. I mean, he looks at 2000 years of yoga and says that the, the big, and I'm not talking about Hatha yoga, but just the yogic endeavor. Union with the mystery or, or with God, or however you want to say that. Yeah, the yogic endeavor has been to reject the material and to renounce the world. And that's, you know, it's a big divide or a mistake to completely reject the world. And that's the source of or the core of integral yoga is where you do both. It, it's not just about attaining God or about divinity or just about liberating the self. It's it's about integrating all of what is. And I think that's at the root of the root of this is this either or division. And it shows up all the way up and all the way down. Even when you come up to the unitive stage, even when you come up to the spiritual traditions, the, there's one of the fundamental beliefs is that non-dual is the goal and duality is bad. And to recognize that you wouldn't have non-duality if you didn't have the concept of duality, that it's a polarity, that they both coexist and they're both interdependent, which is the gift of the construct of our mind, is to recognize that that everything is a dance of the dual and the non-dual. You can't privilege one over the other. So there are many subtleties here, which are all related, I think, to this concept of this either or, either or thinking, which has many subtle manifestations or implications all the way up. So I don't know, Roger, if that was... Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, both sides of the street are God. You know, it's like, <laughs> that, it's, yes. That's why you have, I'm, I'm just having this image. That's why you have a yogi in, in, in an Indian temple that has, you know, had experiences of union with the ultimate and then comes out and kicks the temple dog. Oh, nice, nice. So what are you, besides being uh, an academic and a philosopher and a psychologist, uh, what is your personal practice? How do you keep yourself sane in this sometimes insane, seemingly an insane world? And how do you keep yourself on the, the path of maturation? Oh, that's a big question. First of all, I don't see myself as an academic. I don't even have a master's degree, I should say. I'm just deeply, deeply engaged in the process of living and understanding what, what that's all about. And it's difficult in these times, you know, to keep my sense of I am. It's really a confounding time. And the more I 
learn from other people who are thinking about the meta crisis and about civilizational risk, the more inadequate I feel. And I'm compelled to compelled to find ways to get oriented and to be to be of service. In terms of practices, I think because of my lineage uh, coming from India and the influences in my life, certainly reading the people that clarify my mind instead of generating more questions, I think I rely on them. Reading Nisargadatta and Sri Aurobindo and now Jean Klein, every time they just help me come to some sort of clarity about the fact that the ways in which I'm trying to get clear or the way that in which my mind is functioning is taking me away from what is actually real in this moment. So I think that's my practice is to keep coming home to what is here and now and to see to see through the machinations of the mind and the ego and then to just see it for what it is and to live in this world more skillfully and therefore to sharpen my mind to do that as well. And I have a living teacher I work with who who has been an absolute gift for me. And I guess my life is my instrument or this experience of being conscious. Yeah, so so much is in transition, even for me that I don't quite know, know what to say. Life is never not in transition, right? I mean, we're always in, in this process. So a lot is opening up for me. I'm, I'm realizing so much more I need to educate myself on and learn about. And then realizing that so much more of me, I just need to land back, just land here. So continuously bringing myself home, I think, is my practice. And, and at the risk of categorizing you as a, within the terms of your own tradition, I think of you as an exquisite karma yogi, that is, or yogini, one who takes her life and her work as her pra- practice, and also a jnana yogi, one who uses the intellect to discern <laughs> All sorts of things, and <laughs> including the relative and the absolute, but also the, the nuances of the work you're doing and the sharing and teaching you're doing. So I, I see you as refining both those paths in a beautiful way. And either is unsustainable by itself, right? And that's the central lesson. And that I feel is one of the most important things I've learned in my life is to recognize to recognize these poles when they appear and then to to learn to name them and integrate them. And sometimes, you know, even without naming them, but you get a sense of what you might be leaving out and life will tell you, you know, people tell me, you know, the world tells me what I'm excluding and then to be alive and to be listening to that and then to include that. And, and you've already mentioned briefly a couple of times and John has mentioned one of the things that the world is calling us to, and that is to address the great crises we're, we're facing. And, and we can think of both social and global crises here, but just, just thinking first of our society, you know, our, all the pains and turmoils and turbulence we're going through in this nation and other nations around, around the world. And, and, and the very threats to democracy, and it's and by way of context, it's long been recognized for centuries, even going back to to Plato, that that an educated and informed citizenry was essential if a society and culture was going to survive and thrive. And more recently, 
developmentalists like yourself and Suzanne Kukreuter and Thomas Bjorkman, the Swedish philosopher, philanthropist, have pointed to the fact that we need not only informed citizenry, but a mature citizenry. Mm -hmm. And Thomas Bjorkman suggested we really need people at least at the self-determining stage or a, a large percentage of the population at a self-determining stage if democracy is going to survive. Uh, I'd love to hear your comments on that. Well, that's, that's a very difficult question. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't argue with that, that generally speaking, we, we absolutely need to mature, mature civilization, mature human beings. I'm thinking of people who have studied systems and systems change. I think we need to be listening to people who understand large systems change at, at the global level. There's so many dynamics. Uh, you know, there's there's the political aspect, the economical aspect, the technological aspect, how they all play together. So there are a couple of things that I would say. One is that where is the power? In whose hands is the power? And so the players who have power, what is their context and what is their capacity and how, because they have much bigger influence on the rest. So, so that's one, you know, the the players that have power and then the systems that have power like you know exponential tech the kind of impact that that is having so we, it's unprecedented obviously so i think we are just all stumbling and learning and thinking still trying to make make sense of all of it in terms of i don't know if i could even call it solutions but i i think they can only come within context within small groups where there's shared the shared understanding and there's a capacity to collaborate. I mean, that's all I can say that otherwise, the more we think about larger systems, then again, they become more and more abstract because they are far removed. And we imagine we have solutions for the rest of the system, but that's an abstraction. So it, I keep coming back to I have to mature myself. And in the context that I play in, I I ought to educate myself and, and influence as much as I can. So I think I think there are people out there changing the world for the better. I think there are people out there who can influence. And so I think it's important that the people who can influence and the people who are changing, that they have a better understanding of developmental, of this developmental model. And one of the implications you were pointing to with uh, the need for our own contribution is, you know, when we look at, well, what does the our society need? What 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 do people need to do about you know the world? After if we think about it deeply, it always comes back to the question: What can I do? Yes, it's only one person we can change most profoundly. That's why I love Paul Hawkins' work, even though it's within the context of climate change. You know, his earlier work, not not the work on regeneration, but his earlier work on drawdown, the, the research that they did, 100 researchers coming together from across the world. And then I was just stunned that the number one, the number one, what shall I say? I wouldn't, maybe the, the number one focus that would cause the greatest positive impact on climate change is the education of the girl child. Mm -hmm. Well, this was after you know years and years of research and collating everything that everybody is doing around the world. But this, so that was interesting. So I feel we should listen. We should listen to some of the systems thinkers out there who've done the work and learn from those and begin to integrate those. And then this, his latest book is Regeneration. 
and uh, I haven't read it fully, but I'm just I'm, I'm I love what he has done and made it action oriented. So I can make my own little punch list of all the things that I can do. And it's the philosophy of regeneration. And I'll use Duane Elgin's words, which I love. He says that we become not like-minded, like is also like, not like-minded, but life-minded. What does it mean to be life-minded? That we support life, life not just on the planet, but life, life as consciousness. So two very important contributors there. You mentioned Paul Hawkins and Duane Elgin, to be sure. So we're moving by natural extension to look at the state of our planet and the, the threats we're facing. And John, you have both mentioned the existential threats as the kind of meta crisis, the sum total of the crisis. And just to set a context here, if we look at the extent of our technological power, which you've also pointed to, as uh, Daniel Schmachtenberg calls it, our godlike technological power, which is accelerating exponentially to the point where now our power is so great that if you look across the world, what you begin to recognize, the state of the world now reflects the state of our individual and collective minds. Our powers are so powerful that we have molded the world, the planet, into the, the Anthropocene age where the very physical nature of the world, not to mention society, culture, et cetera, is a reflection of our individual and collective psyches. And the implication of that is that what we take to be our global problems are actually global symptoms. They're symptoms of our individual and collective neuroses and immaturities and foibles. And that if we're going to effectively heal the great crises we're facing, we're going to have to do both outer work on the symptoms and inner work on on the the sources. So that expands what we need to do. And clearly, we are going to need, as the Aldous Huxley wrote the wonderful utopian novel, Island. And when the stranger comes to this utopia, he's stunned and asks, well, where do you start? And they respond, we start everywhere at once. So clearly we're going to have to need to start everywhere at once. We need the, th- the blooming of a thousand flowers. And one thing we're going to have to do is we're going to have to do, among many other things, is begin to grow our way out of these crises, grow our ways out of the ways of thinking and understandings and immaturities that led us to create them. So this seemed the, here the the explanatory power and the transformative power of developmental ideas such as your own just seems incredibly important. And and I think one of the games we're playing with this podcast is John and I are really looking at what are the most strategic ideas we can get out into the culture which would have most transformative power, most leverage. And clearly your developmental ideas are some of them. You know, we somehow we have to get the recognition of the potential for development and the ways we can foster it out into the culture at large as one contribution to this enormously, inconceivably complex challenges we're facing in our time. 
Yeah, beautifully said, Roger. I totally agree that, I mean, we have no choice but to develop our inner capacities, you know, our capacities to explore ourselves and grow ourselves, and then our capacity to understand the complexity outside and to design, design solutions that are for the better and not and be able to recognize the unconsciousness from which the current you know crisis has been has been created in some ways so my my work is in leadership and early on one of the things that i remember being struck by is that a lot of advances in human development or adult development in the world in the work world were being made as a result of a lot of investment by corporations in studying and so that leadership could be developed. So in the context of corporate sort of understanding of leadership development, there's been a lot more impact in people in the world than coming from theories or from academia or from institutions, for example. So the the amount of investment that comes into developing leaders is unmatched. I mean, I was shocked to discover this was a month ago that leadership development is a $161 billion annual industry. Mm. So why am I saying this? I'm saying that if we if we can bring in the developmental thinking and the complexity skills that are required for interior and exterior growth, if we can bring it into into this huge industry that is there's a lot of money being spent and a lot of resources that are attempting to create the leaders of the future if we don't bring in the thinking capacity needed to meet existential risk in the leadership development context then we are failing or rather we are missing a huge opportunity so that's sort of where my attention is because i have some access and connection to some organizations so I feel like I'm a babe in the woods right now, even in understanding the complexity, the meta crisis. And I think that over the next one or two years, that's one of the areas of my focus is how can I how can I create leadership development modules that teaches leaders to understand what is what does it mean to under, to define a generator function that's causing dysfunction in my system, at least let me at least start with my system. How do I recognize a perverse incentive in my organization? I'm trying to bring about change in my organization, but there are hidden perverse incentives that are not going to allow that change to happen. Can I develop my thinking to see that? And if I can see that, can I see that in the larger systems? And then can I see that in global issues? So I feel there's no choice for us but to train how we think and how we can learn from all the thinkers who are naming these things and defining what is needed. At least that's one one potential avenue that there is almost, you know, unlimited possibility for us to influence decision making and design thinking. So how are we designing develop, de- development of teachers, development of leaders, development of politicians? How are we designing their development? Everywhere it comes down to a design question. How are we designing policy? How are we designing governance? So it can quickly get, again, you know, difficult to compute and imagine. And you're pointing to the fact that this is the great issue of our time. The, the, this meta-crisis, the sum total of both our inner and outer 
dysfunctions and very real possibility of civilizational collapse. And that needs to be the context of our thinking and our work as we go as we go forward for for if not all of us, then a significant majority of us. Yeah, I feel I can no longer do do coaching of leaders and say I'm I'm doing ego development work or developing human maturity without including the capacity for us to look at civilizational risk. Wonderful, and that feels like a, an exquisite example for so many professions and and roles that that whatever we do is now needs to be within this context of how does this serve civilizational well-being and survival. And therefore, for, for, for that to happen, I cannot, I, ha- I have no voice or no nothing to stand on to say that this is what we should be doing. I first need to educate myself. I need to understand. Mm. I need to, to learn how to bring those solutions. I recently was talking to a person who was in a program that I'm part of at a national level in another country. And this person has a $500 million budget, works in the in the telecom industry. If I'm worth anything, I should, if I'm coaching this person, I need to help this person think through the decisions that they are taking at that scale and where those decisions are impacting existential risk positively or negatively. I ought to be able to do that. Otherwise, I'm not being responsible. And that clearly is your life con. It sounds like you've taken taken this on as your life con. I mean, yeah, I feel it would be irresponsible for me not to. Yeah, yeah and, and my, my, my little bit is we need to work on ourselves and take self-development serious as a heart attack, which I've had. So it's pretty serious. And do that as a a daily commitment to becoming the best versions of ourselves that we can be. And from that place, we can actually hold the meta crisis, you know, because if I didn't have my, my heart and my feet in some deep, deep place, I would be completely overwhelmed by the pain and the suffering and the, the seeming stupidity of a lot of my brothers and sisters and how we treat each other and the things that we do in the world. So it, uh, my commitment has to been to, to work on myself and I, it requires a lot of work and, and also to, to my calling is, okay, what can I do? You know? And I, and I realize that, you know, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not going to be able to, you know, go poof and all my visions of what we should be doing, but in each little way that I can and, and follow that, like, what can I do today, God, you know, to, to, to fulfill, to, you know, the reason I'm here and I don't have that much time left. So what can I do to, to pitch in and, and do my bit. And then when we do our small part, as in, in, in chaos theory says, you know, you never know. You never know if the butterfly flapping its wings over here is going to, you know, create the Beatles in Liverpool or something. You never know what's going to happen. That just commitment to do our best and to, to grow in compassion and wisdom and knowledge and keep our bodies and minds strong so that we can meet the challenges of our times is about as good as we can do. And then if there is a higher power, if God has an agenda, and I certainly hope he does, or she does, then we can we can become instruments of that in a small way. And that keeps me from falling into despair because I, I keep, keep the, you know, I keep working myself and, and trying to open and 
do better. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you, John. I, I realized that I just named this yesterday, that one of the polarity, the central polarity in my life that I'm working with now is I am doing and I am being done. You know, that I am doing this and that I am being done. The things are happening through me. And if I just think back of all the things that I think I did, I took this decision. If I really ask myself, it actually just happened. And I attached myself to the fact that I did it, but it happened. And so there's some something, it's opening up something in me of just trusting more of what is happening and what will happen. And, and of course, to attempt to do and to, uh, to do as wisely as possible, but never to forget also that I'm being done. Yes. Yes. And there's a beautiful line in an exquisite poem by the third Zen patriarch, which says, the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. Mm. And on the other side of that polarity, we probably ought to add the uh, <laughs> the Islamic aphorism that trust Allah, but tie your camel. So <laughs> both sides of that one. So both of you have pointed to the importance of the question of what can I do? And beyond that, even what's the most strategic thing I can do? And you're both looking at that. And there's also the question of scale. How can these these transformative ideas and the practices associated with them be scaled. And I can think of three examples that give possible implications. One is Neo-Confucianism, which beginning in the, well, around the, around the turn of the millennium, about 1100, 1100 into the Common Era, instituted or created a whole collection of institutes throughout China and then throughout Korea uh, in which Neo-Confucians could, could really immerse themselves in, in Confucianism, not just as a philosophy, but as a living practice for cultivating people who were both wise, but also politically involved. That was their the, that was the the sage was not seen in Confucianism as an someone who retired into the mountains, but someone who was actively involved in politics in the world. Second example is what the Nordic countries was what was called Bildung, and here we had Thomas Bjorkman, who was a wonderful guest who has been on our program, who wrote a beautiful book on Bildung, uh, the Nordic Secret, talking about that the Nordic countries are in the late 19th century had deliberately instituted culture-wide training programs or kind of like graduate schools where anyone could go to. You didn't have to be an academic or an intellectual or you could be a farmer's child or daughter. But it was deliberately aimed at Bildung, that is the cultivation of the whole person. And Thomas Bjorkman lays out a very strong argument that this was really instrumental in changing the Nordic countries, which at that time were agrarian, into some of the most prosperous and livable countries in the world. So those two examples, and then today, something you've effectively pointed to, Bina, is Robert Keegan's idea of the deliberately developmental organization, that organizations can institute the idea of growth as an inherent opportunity and responsibility of every employee. And Ken Wilbur and Dustin DePerna have extrapolated that in a quite brief uh, but very important article 
laying out the idea of a deliberately developmental civilization. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's what we need now. Oh, yes. Amen. Amen. Yes. Yeah. So we're coming toward, we've, we've, there's been such a rich dialogue, so much, but as we come towards the, the close, do you see any ways in which we can make developmental programs more effective? For example, I think of two possibilities, and I'd love to have you, you add to them. One is we have an almost as yet untapped reservoir of wisdom and practices from the world's contemplative traditions, which are just beginning to be recognized in the West. But, you know, the, for example, I'm interested in the topic of wisdom. You look at the wisdom research literature in the West, it's like, well, maybe this is probably what wisdom looks like. Too bad we don't know how to cultivate it. And then you go to the wisdom traditions you know, uh, of India, of China, of the, you know, the East, and and you find that there's they've got 50 practices for cultivating wisdom. So we have this untapped gold mine just waiting to be integrated with the best of our contemporary psychological understanding. So that's one thing. And then there's a question of both technology as the great opportunity and challenge. Are there ways in which technology can be harvested to foster development? Any thoughts? Oh, yeah. The second one, absolutely. There's no question that technology can be harvested for for good. And so, again, it's it's a design issue. And it's also an issue of the people who are in who are the players in the technology field, expanding their ability to see how this can be applied and what are the checks and balances that need to that need to be put in place while creating these godlike technologies that can truly support the evolution of consciousness for sure so the second for me the answer is absolutely yes the first what was the first one that you mentioned this one was a, a mining of the wisdom of the great traditions so here i feel that again partly thanks to technology but also thanks to the just the breaking down of all kinds of barriers and communication all of these are available to anybody right now which again is unprecedented so again that brings me back to the developmental framework which explains why why it feels like we need to make people access them or use it to develop people so in the framework up to stage 3 4 which is the stage, sorry, I introduced the numbers that weren't used before this, up until the skill-centric stage, there is no natural inclination to grow. There is, until then, until the skill-centric, there's a beginning inclination to perfect, to perfect one's task, to perfect one's job, because it helps the sense of self, because myself is identified by what I do. So the better doctor I am, the more degrees I have, the better person I am. That's the function of the ego at that level. It's only at the self-determining stage that there is that objectivity willing to act upon myself and grow. So for anybody who is up, who is self-determining and above, we don't have, I mean, life is going to take them life is going to move them towards accessing all of these practices just much as like you and me how did we get here you know we grew and then we accessed and we inquired and we explored and we learned and we studied the wisdom traditions so 
I don't have an answer to that first question because research tells me that, you know, six, up to 50, 60% of the people are not looking to grow. Hmm. That's where they are. Just, I mean, if I use the framework to understand what, what is going on. So that is not very encouraging. <laughs> and yet I remember from your courses, you are very skillful at finding ways which will support these people to be more, more functional, more yes. healthy. Yes. And that's why I'm, I'm working with organizations because the imperative for the skill-centric stage is the company wants you to develop. And so they come, they wouldn't come on their own. We don't have self-selected people coming from that stage. Mm. There has to be some imperative, some imperative to grow. It's not, it's not a function of that stage. So then it has to be a function of the context or it has to be a function of unsustainable problems. When things start falling apart, then even people at earlier stages, you know, would begin to say, oh, but we have to do something. And then they would look. So I don't know. I know that's not a, not an answer. And but yeah, well, it's a first. It's a first step. It's where we are are now, and part of the work will be to develop effective ways of supporting people, both to be more functional, as you say, where they are, and at least open possibilities for them for for development. Yeah, I guess I don't want to forget that, you know, 50 to 70% of the population, generally speaking, is at conventional stages. So there are limits, yeah. there are limits to the conventional mind. And uh, when you have exponential tech that is expanding the reach of the conventional mind, then you can imagine. So people who are post-conventional need to use technology even more smartly to counter some of, some of that, if you will. I mean, when the political climate changed in the US just around when, when Mr. Trump became a president, you know, we should not have been surprised because we, it felt like people came out of the woodwork. It felt because we assumed that there weren't people who felt so strongly about certain things, but, but you know, Research tells us that 50 to 70% are early conventional. And, and what we saw was the early conventional becoming more visible. That's it. I mean, that's one way of understanding. Sure. Well, that's part of the picture, yeah. We've covered an enormous amount here. It's, it's been, a, it's been a, a tour de force, kind of like a great, a great tour of human possibilities and, and maturation and stages and their implications and the possibilities that are available to us now that just weren't before. It's been truly a, just a wonderful voyage. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, Bina? Hmm. Yeah, I probably would like to say that all frames are useful up to a point, you know, for us to remember that all frames are constructs. Even this, the global issue, the collective we is an abstraction in some ways. And nothing is one thing. And everything is one thing. <laughs> and nothing is a substitute for anything else. And every understanding is a misunderstanding. Well, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> All right. I'm not sure I wanted to hear that, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, until we reach the next understanding. I understand, I think. <laughs> until, until we get to the next understanding that seems more, uh, more comprehensive, seems more complete. You know, everything is infinite. We know that. There is no end to anything. And, and perhaps we're experiencing collective growth pains 
right? That, that times of stress and great suffering and changing an environment seems to be the thing, at least in the, in the yeah, record and that Earth gives us, it, it's what brings forth change and transformation. Very yeah, rapidly. and that's happening in our personal lives too. We are, we are, we are through growth pains, you know, in every, every phase and to, to recognize the war within I think is maybe that's where we, we could end, that the war outside begins with the war inside. Yes, and and in Islam, the, there is the, the lesser jihad, which is the, the battle outside, and the greater jihad, which yes. is the work within, so beautifully said. Bina, I want to thank you so much. This really has been a gift both to John and me and to everyone that these ideas get out to. And your your life's work is really a, an enormous contribution and, a, and it really feels like a missing, a piece of the puzzle that's been missing, which just as illuminates so much, has so much explanatory power, as you said, and, and opens opportunities for more effective living, both individually, collectively, and now as a civilization. Uh, Let's see, your work is available through, you know, this This has been a wonderful taste, but I know it's only a taste. Your Vertical Development Academy has a variety of courses for anyone who wants to dive deeper. And as someone who's dived very deeply into many of your courses, I can highly recommend them. They've just been a, a real gift to me and to so many others. And a deep appreciation of you and your good work. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, you. Nina, it's good to connect with you more. Oh, thank you. It's totally my honor and privilege. And I feel I'm just, I'm just learning. I'm just beginning in a way. And I am humbled. I feel every, in some ways, every piece is a missing piece, right? <laughs> there are new pieces that are, we are learning more about. And I'm, I'm looking to, uh, I'm really looking to integrate from people who have studied more of the big issues that we're dealing with so that I can I can include that in the work that I'm doing. And I feel it's it's our responsibility, all our responsibilities. So, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah. I just loved our conversation. And yeah, I don't assume that I have I have it baked. Well, we are, I, I, I believe you actually teach that we're all in transitions. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for thank sharing you so much. with thank us. You so much. Greatly you, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Bye for now. Until the next time. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast. And we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do from John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation Team.